So I'll be reading from Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 17 to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then moving down to verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in, the, in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, chapter 10. This morning we're going to be reading verses 25 through 37, as already mentioned, the famed parable of the Good Samaritan. We're in the middle of a short sermon series discovering what kingdom character looks like. Kingdom character. J.I. Packer describes God's kingdom like this. He says, the kingdom is not a place, it's a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. Uh, the, the kingdom is a relationship in which people have enthroned Jesus as Lord of their lives. And so when we're inspecting kingdom character in the parables of Jesus, we're essentially asking, what happens in your life when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What kind of transformation happens when you make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life? That is such a vital question. It assumes from the very outset that Jesus does things for you that no one else can. I was recently reading a book on anger, a Christian book on anger, and the guiding question in the book was, what can Jesus do for you that anger management courses cannot? And I find that to be a profound question and a very optimistic and hopeful question because it promises us real transformation through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Kingdom character is what Jesus is actually doing in our lives. It's what he is up to in our lives through his rule and reign in our hearts. And kingdom character is good for the world. It's really good for the world. We saw last week that the kingdom of God is like yeast that comes into a, a batch of flour and turns the whole thing into a, a leavened batch. It's this pervasive, transforming power. The kingdom of God is like that, permeating the world with its power and making disciples everywhere in large part through the changed lives of Jesus's followers. As Christians live out their faith in front of a watching world, people get to see the beauty of the gospel on display, and people then get to experience the practical, tangible blessings of Jesus's gospel and his saving work. So again, kingdom character is what God is up to in our lives, and kingdom character is profoundly good for the world. We'll see both of those things are true in today's text, where we see that kingdom character involves mercy. 
Today, we'll discover God's standard for love. The parable of the Good Samaritan reveals to us God's standard for love, summed up in one sentence, God wants us to be merciful. And then we're going to find some really good news that God makes us merciful. And finally, we'll hear God's kingdom call, be merciful yourselves. Be merciful in your own lives. And let's hear that now in God's holy word given for us. This is Luke chapter 10. Uh, Please join me. Uh, By the way, if you're using your pew Bibles, you can find it on page 869. Uh, And if you are not a a possessor of a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we welcome you to take that one with you. Uh, Or if you know someone in your life that needs a Bible, please take that one. It would be a gift to, to you or a gift to them. We love to make God's word available wherever it's needed. And so please hear now God's holy word from Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this amazing story of mercy. And we thank you for the twin realities that you are doing good work in our lives. You are making us into the people you want us to be, and you're making us into people who are good for the world. I pray that you would do that now through this preached word, through your text, through your spirit. Would you speak to us and enable us to hear, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, a will to obey. Make us merciful, O now, now, O God. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
In this text, like I said, God is transforming us to be merciful people through the gospel. And this pathway towards becoming merciful people begins with a a very famous question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You can almost feel both smugness and insecurity rising from the page when we hear that question asked a lawyer an expert in the Jewish law, not only knowing it, but also applying it to certain situations. This expert in the Jewish law has approached Jesus to put him to the test. He wants to try and trap Jesus in an argument, ask the right kind of question that would push Jesus into a corner, maybe make him contradict himself or make him contradict something else in the law. Whatever it is, the lawyer's goal is to publicly embarrass Jesus. To, to make his own reputation go down while the lawyer's reputation rises. He'll be known as the guy who bested Jesus of Nazareth in scriptural interpretation. And that test begins with a question about eternal life. Uh, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And normally this is a fantastic question, Right? Eternal life. The the promise that death does not have the final word over us. The promise that we will live again with God. Eternal life is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. Every single one of us should be passionately concerned with finding eternal life. But from the lawyer, this was not a fantastic question. This was not an honest question. And Jesus knew it. And so being the expert in wise speech, Jesus doesn't play the game. Instead, he puts the question back on the lawyer. He says, what do you think? What does the law say about your question? What's your interpretation? How do you read it? And the lawyer, at this point in time, probably a little bit stunned at what happened, gives what what would be a fairly standard answer for the day. One inherits eternal life by doing what the law requires. And what does the law require? Well, it's, it's simple. Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commands. The two laws of love. But it's one thing to know it and be able to recite it. It's another thing entirely to do it. That's why Jesus replies in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you shall live. Do this and you'll get the eternal life that you want. But that's a haunting reply, isn't it? That's That's a very haunting reply because what if we haven't loved God and neighbor good enough? And the lawyer is bothered by that. And so he asks a clarifying question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This was a common question at Jesus' time. The Jews knew, based on their understanding of God's law in Leviticus, like we heard this morning, it was their obligation to owe love to your neighbor. But if you could restrict who your neighbor was, then you could reduce 
the call to love indiscriminately. And that was a common tactic at the time in various groups. So uh, some said that if you were a Pharisee, you belonged to the, the group known as the Pharisees, that you didn't owe love to non-Pharisees. There was another Jewish sect at the time that said that if you didn't belong to their group, then anyone in their group were, were authorized to revile you as a son of darkness worthy of hatred, even their fellow Jews, because they weren't faithful enough. They were not obligated to love these people. Others said that you had to love your fellow Jews, but you could despise them if they were heretics or if they were, were cooperating with the Roman government at the time, or if they turned their back on the cause of the nation of Israel. And still others said that you needed to love all others, except your own personal enemies. Anyone who may have offended you personally, it's like they were saying to God, we're willing to keep your law, as long as you grant me some exceptions to your law. I'm willing to follow everything you want of me as long as you give me just a couple of loopholes, a couple of outs, so that I can do what I want. Have you ever thought that before? I, I, I certainly know that I have. I think this is a common strategy of the human heart to worm its way out of God's regulations, but Jesus reveals to us in this text God's unflinching standard of love. God wants us to be merciful, and so Jesus tells a story of shocking mercy, absolutely shocking mercy. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, immediately the people would have perked up. This was a well-known road. People knew what it was like, so they would start envisioning this perilous journey. If you look on a map, uh, Jerusalem and Jericho are about 17 miles apart. It's not a long walk, but there's a tremendous descent. It's about 3,000 feet uh, lower in elevation, Jericho is, from Jerusalem. So that's why it says he's going down. He's literally going downhill through hilly, rocky, desolate, dangerous territory. This road had a reputation for violence. If you look at pictures of it, what you can see here uh, is this is incredibly desolate terrain, and there are all kinds of caves, all sorts of hollows along the side of the road where a robber or a gang of people could uh, hide and then jump out at unsuspecting passers-by, and that's what happens here. The, the man is going alone on a dangerous road in the middle of nowhere. He gets jumped. A gang takes everything. They beat him savagely, and then they leave him alone to die, alone, half dead there in the middle of the road. And Jesus' listeners are wondering, who's going to save the day? They want the man to be saved. They want a rescuer. Enter a priest. A priest comes along the road, one of Israel's spiritual leaders, a steward of God's righteous standards. Maybe there's hope for the beaten man. But as the priest draws near, he sees a naked, bloody human body lying on the side of the road. And without stopping, without investigating any further, he walks to the other side of the road, 
so that he doesn't have to get involved at all. He goes out of his way to ignore and avoid the dying man. And we're not sure why. The text doesn't give us any more details. It just says that the priest is going down the road as well, meaning that he's also leaving Jerusalem to go to Jericho. Many priests lived in Jericho. These would be living details that the people would get at the time. So this priest has finished his liturgical duties in Jerusalem, and he's on his way home. Maybe he thought, I'm a priest. I can't touch dead bodies. Maybe he thought, I've already served God, and I'm almost home. I I just want to get there. Maybe he thought, that looks too messy, and I don't want to get involved in it. Whatever the reason that he avoided helping, we can tell in this parable that he made a mistake. He did not do the right thing by going to the other side of the road. Well, next, a Levite shows up. The Levites were the assistants to the priests. They were highly trained in the law of Israel, highly esteemed in the culture as as religious leaders of the time. Maybe this Levite, a righteous man, maybe he will help a neighbor in need. But no, alas, the Levite also avoids the situation. He goes around the half-dead man, goes to the other side of the road, and just keeps going. Thankfully, a third person shows up on the scene, and Jesus' listeners were primed for this. Jesus is utilizing uh, a, a very classic story pattern of the time. Two people fail at something, a third person succeeds, so the people are excited to meet the hero, and they're expecting, likely, a normal Jewish guy. Uh, their, their ears are, are probably perked up for some sort of devastating takedown of religious clergy. The priest failed. The Levite failed. Well, now a commoner will succeed where the religious leadership failed. But that's not at all what Jesus has in store for them. Instead, Jesus offers a devastating takedown of their pride. The hero is a Samaritan. A Samaritan! The crowd would have gasped at this. The Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They were common enemies. It would be kind of like um, being in a Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland and saying uh, there was a Catholic who was walking down a back alley and ran into a Protestant who was beaten uh, and half alive. The Presbyterians in Northern Ireland at that point would say, what? This isn't, this isn't the, the hero that we're expecting. This is not what we're looking for. But let's look at what this unexpected hero does. Look, what does he do in action? Unlike the other two who coldly crossed the street to avoid the situation, the Samaritan sees the beaten man, and the text says that he has compassion. That means that he has this emotional response within his body. He feels compassion. And he goes up to the man. He dares to touch this person to see if he's still alive. He checks on him. And then he uses his own wine, his own oil to cleanse and 
soothe the man's wounds. This man is naked. He would have clothed him with whatever clothes he had with him. He places the man on his own animal, walks alongside. He goes to the inn. He pays for the lodging at the inn. The text says that he, he tends to him. He stays with him all night, checking on him, making sure that he's okay. And then in the morning, when it's time for him to leave, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, two full days' wages. And using the, the calculations of the time, this would probably be equivalent to at least two to three weeks' worth of further lodging that he pays for this, this unknown Jewish man to stay. And then he puts himself on the hook for even more by telling the innkeeper, if if you need to spend more money on him, just pay it to my account, and I'll pay it to you when I get back. This is a shocking display of mercy, and it reveals to us a very shocking truth. This is God's standard for love. This is what God wants from us, friends. And when we look at God's standard compared to the quality of our hearts and our expectations, we'll notice a couple things. Uh, first, God's standard changes the focus of the question. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks, who acted like a neighbor? The lawyer wants to focus on other people. Who out there deserves my love? Jesus changes the question internally, am I loving? Am I willing to love? And that's a much more uncomfortable question, isn't it? We would rather keep that external focus, wouldn't we? That's what our world does. That's what our culture teaches us to do, to judge other people, to see if they are worthy of our mercy. But God is far more concerned with our character. Am I the kind of person that willingly, freely gives mercy to others? God's standard for mercy also widens the scope of mercy. Jesus' listeners wanted a narrow answer to the question, who is my neighbor? They wanted God's permission to love only a certain number of people. And they wanted God's permission to exclude other people from their care. And they wanted that narrow scope because they wanted to feel better about themselves. They wanted to feel good about their righteousness. They wanted to say to the Lord, we have kept your law, but they could only keep it if God allowed them to exclude people who were difficult or unfaithful or unable to repay the kindness. And maybe you've done the same. I know that I have, but Jesus doesn't allow it. God wants us to be merciful, merciful, broadly, deeply merciful, feeling the need to help someone else in need and then doing it regardless of the cost or the cultural appropriateness. That is the standard. And God's standard exposes our hearts. Remember, the lawyer is after justification. It's the motivation, verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and 
who is my neighbor. He hoped that his behavior was good enough for him to inherit eternal life for himself. And Jesus says, it's not. It's not. This parable exposes our own spiritual deficiency. When we are honest in the face of God's standard, we have to say that I can't keep that standard. I can't keep that standard even if I wanted to. And quite frankly, I rarely want to. See, we may be good at being nice, but none of us are up to the task of being universally merciful. And that's what God's standard requires of us. And so we're left with a quandary, aren't we? Uh, We're left wondering, what are we supposed to do now? We can't trust ourselves to be merciful. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do in this parable. What Jesus is doing in this parable is shaking off our prideful attachment to our own virtue, helping us to realize that we ourselves are not merciful so that we can look to the one person who can actually give us real hope, Jesus Christ himself. That's what's happening in this parable. Jesus is driving us to himself. God wants us to be merciful, and on our own, we cannot be. And so God, in his grace, makes us merciful. God makes us merciful. And the pathway to mercy begins with humility. Kingdom character in mercy begins when we say, I need mercy. I need mercy personally. I've seen the standard, and I can't keep the standard. I have no hope for eternal life based on my own works. My only hope is if someone else will have mercy on me, if God will have mercy on me for my failings and my shortcomings. And friends, that's where the gospel is the sweetest. Jesus is mercy in the flesh. He is mercy incarnate. The most common cry from sick people to Jesus in the Gospels was simply, have mercy on me. We see that constantly in the Gospels. Someone coming up to Jesus, falling on their faces and saying, have mercy on me. And Jesus happily moved towards them and healed them. Jesus loves the statement, I need mercy. It fills his heart with compassion because Jesus loves to save sinners who are humiliated by their own failings. If God's standard is do this and live, Jesus' gospel offer to you is follow me and be saved. Counterintuitively, when we humble ourselves, when we follow Jesus as his disciples, in that moment of humiliation, that's the point wherein God begins to raise us up. That is the point when we are humbled that Jesus begins to transform us. As Nancy Guthrie puts it, God does his best work with empty. When we are empty of ourselves, then he can begin to fill us up because when we realize that we need mercy, then we immediately begin to see that other people need mercy. Others need mercy. 
in our humility, we realize that other people are, are just like us. They are made in God's image. They are broken by sin, and they are in need of mercy. And when we see others in that light, then compassion begins to well up within us. And then we realize a third thing, I have mercy to give. I have mercy to give. God has given me mercy, and now I can offer mercy to other people. It might involve my money. It might involve my time. The Good Samaritan gave both. There's certainly a cost to us showing mercy. But when we see ourselves, first of all, as recipients of mercy, people who have found mercy through the extravagant gift of the cross of Christ, then we realize that it is a great privilege to give mercy to other people. I have mercy to give. And that leads to a final realization. The more I give, the more I receive. The more I give, the more I receive. Yes, there is this material cost to our works of mercy, but there's an even more abundant spiritual benefit and spiritual reward. Every time we offer mercy to other people, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is with us, enabling us to sense his presence, and that is a far greater reward than any financial or time expenditure that we give. As the great St. Augustine says about this parable, we have compassion on one another so that we may enjoy Christ. And then he goes even further, we have compassion on one another so that we may enjoy Christ completely. The more I give the more I receive. And then the more I receive, the more I want to keep giving. That is how God makes us merciful. He humbles us so that we ask for mercy. Then we see others in need of mercy. Then we see our things, our time, ourselves as something that God has given so that we can give mercy to other people, and then to our delight, we discover that when we give mercy, we find ourselves caught up in greater communion with the God of mercy. And so we want to keep offering more and more mercy. That's how we become merciful. We don't need a sensitivity training course. And we don't need exploitative fundraising videos showing us how bad other people have it. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus does for us what no one else can. Jesus makes us merciful. So be merciful. Be merciful. Verses 36 through 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. God wants us to be merciful. God makes us merciful through the gospel, so be merciful. The application of this parable is pretty straightforward. Be merciful in all of your life. Be merciful in your relationships. This text is about being a neighbor, or as the New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias translates it, being a friend. It's about 
being a friend. God is concerned in this parable with us befriending others in need. He's not concerned in this parable about whether others deserve our friendship. The focus is on us. Are we friends? And so ask yourself this question, who needs a friend? Who in my life needs a friend? Likely, most of us on a daily basis are not going through desolate roads and running into half-dead victims. Jesus uses the extreme nature of this parable to open our eyes, to sort of shock our eyes open to the state of our hearts and to the real needs around us. And so look at your lives. Opportunities to show mercy abound. Maybe it's a family member who is struggling, or there's some local teenagers who need mentors down the road at the, at the local school, or there's that person at your office or in your class that just seems really sad. Maybe it's the refugees who have moved into town because they've been displaced by conflict. Maybe it's the familiar person on the side of the road on your daily commute who's struggling with homelessness. Maybe it's the bully who seems to have everything going their way. Maybe it's even someone here at church who in your life needs a friend. Take just a second to think about that. Who in your life needs a friend? Likely, uh, even now, the Spirit of God may be bringing someone to mind, uh, someone that you feel compelled at this moment uh, to, to see as a person needing a friend. And if we follow the grain of this parable, it's probably someone that you think is pretty difficult. Uh, if you're tempted in this moment to sort of say, you maybe have a name or a, an image of a person that flashes into your heart or mind at this moment, and you say, please God, not them, uh, then you're on the right track. And you need to, to listen to that. Be merciful in your relationships. Secondly, be merciful with your resources. Be merciful with your resources. The Good Samaritan spared no expense. He lost an entire day of travel. He uses his oil, his wine, his clothes, his own vehicle. He, he gives the vehicle that he had, his animal, puts the man on it, forcing himself to walk alongside. He goes to the inn. He spends more money. He leaves the inn, spends even more money, and promises to give even more. He used his resources with mercy. And so do the same. What's it going to take for you to befriend the person in your life who needs a friend? Do you need to pay for a lunch or a coffee date? Do you need to take some time off of work in order to help them? Maybe you need to spend a Saturday together, some of, some of your coveted time that you would like to spend on other things. Maybe God is calling you to spend it with someone else. Using the vehicular analogy of the animal, do you need to offer someone a ride? Do you need to open up space around your table to welcome other people? Do you need to welcome other people into your family? Or spiritually, do you need to go out on a limb and say, can I pray for you? That sounds really hard. In fact, can we pray together? Can we pray right now? Whatever it is for you in this situation, use your resources with mercy, 
knowing that Jesus himself is with you when you're merciful. It is absolutely worth it. No matter what you spend or sacrifice, Jesus has more. He has more to give you. And the abundance of his riches will pour into your life, his spiritual wealth as you spend yourself for other people. Be merciful with your resources. And finally, be merciful with your networks. Be merciful with your networks. The Good Samaritan did not act alone. He offered the wounded man a network of care when he involved the innkeeper. Again, asking the innkeeper to take care of this person for two to three more weeks and possibly even beyond. And so when you think of the person uh, that God is leading you to befriend or bless, then also you should ask, who else can help you? Because we should not be approaching the work of mercy alone. The work of mercy is unsustainable. If we each approach it as our own individual work, we have to lean on our networks of care. And so ask yourself, what can your networks offer? There's all kinds of stuff that your networks can offer. Job training, job opportunities, technical assistance, household assistance, financial resources, material goods, spiritual care, spiritual support, a community of friendship, Of course, it takes courage to ask your network to help someone else in need. It also takes courage for you to invite someone into your networks, but God has given you these connections so that you can help bless others because that's the point of kingdom character. Kingdom character is good for the world. God is transforming us as part of his redemptive plan for transforming the entire world. In his book, The Priority of Preaching, Christopher Ashe compares living in a broken world to seeing a complicated jigsaw puzzle dumped out of the box onto a table and scattered all over the place. So you can tell when you're looking at this that there is a beautiful picture in there, but right now it is a jumbled mess. And when you see that jumbled mess, you want to do something about it. You want to come and and tidy it up, and you want someone else to come and help you. I think that's a perfect analogy for life in our world, isn't it? Because our world, our region, our society, our culture in this area is marked by relational fracturing and political polarization. There is social isolation, loneliness, violence, insecurity, shame, injustice. In short, our region suffers from a lack of mercy. And we see it. We feel it. We wonder, what is God going to do about it? Is God going to do something about this jumbled mess that we experience on a daily basis? Here's what God is doing about it. God is actively at work reassembling what has been broken through the gospel, through the Spirit, through the church. As Christopher Ashe puts it, God reaches the world by shaping the church by the preached word. Let me say that again. God reaches the world by shaping the church by the preached word 
And this is his word. In a world starving for mercy, God provides merciful people. Us. You. And me. God wants us to be merciful. God makes us merciful, so be merciful. Be merciful for the sake of the world in need. And be merciful for the sake of Christ, who gave himself for us on the cross as a profound gift and a model of mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this parable of the Good Samaritan, so familiar to so many of us and so humbling. We cannot live up to your standard of mercy and love on our own. We thank you for showing us the heart of your law, uh, which is to show mercy to all others. I pray that in response to your word, you would humble us, call us to Christ, transform us into merciful people by the gospel so that we can then go out and be merciful. Each one of us, Lord, has a need for mercy. And I pray that you would meet that in Jesus. And each one of us has opportunities to show mercy. And I pray that you would make us as a church merciful, known for our works of mercy, so that we can help the broken world around us and so that the broken world around us can sense the mercy that comes from Christ. Save others through our works of mercy. Teach us about your riches and let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come so that on earth it would be as it is in heaven. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.